And so this week brings us to actually the last of three specific examples in the community of how to live in the midst of hostility. Uh, the first one was uh, directly to slaves. He was writing to the household servants that were in the community and how to live with a master who did not um, treat you well. The second section is on husbands and wives, not just wives, but also how husbands should live subordinate to wives. And the third one is what we're going to focus on today, starting in verse 8. And it is a, um, it's a passage that's written to the Christian community as a whole. So I've talked to these people, and I've talked to these people, and then he starts out with, okay, so then for all of you now, we're going to tell you what you should do and how you should act. So let's open together 1 Peter 3. We're going to start at verse 8 or read through verse 17. Peter writes this. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but... On the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. <clears throat> Maybe I got this a little bit wrong. Because this doesn't seem to be a passage about a life of blessing. This seems to be a passage about a life of suffering. This doesn't seem to be a good news is coming to those who believe in Christ as so much as suffering is coming to those who believe in Christ. So maybe we have it a little bit wrong that the word to the wise, the word to the community, the word to the Christians gathered in Asia Minor in this church, the churches that Peter was writing to, maybe we've got it a little bit backwards where he's saying, yeah, you're going to suffer in this community. Tell your friends, let's bring more people to church. Let's grow this thing because you're gonna suffer and you're gonna be outcasts in the community. You're gonna be oppressed and you're going to be pushed away. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe this isn't a life of blessing. Maybe this is a life of persecution and oppression and meeting one another in dark places, in secret corners, because we're not allowed to practice what we want to practice. We're not allowed to say the things we're allowed to say. 
So what is Peter talking about when he says this is a life of blessing, that you will be blessed if you do these things? Well, straight away, he starts off with five really important things that he wants the people in the Christian community to do. How do we live amongst the hostile world? How do we share who we are with the outside world? Well, first of all, it requires us to live together as people in five different ways. In order to be a witness to the world on the outside, we first have to do it on the inside. We first have to be a church. We first have to be a people committed to Christ in order to do it on the outside. So here's the first one. He says, have amongst you unity of spirit. Now, this unity of spirit gets a bad rap. Uh, sometimes it says harmonious. Sometimes it says like-minded. Um, sometimes unity of Christ instead of unity of spirit. It is misunderstood as uniformity, but it actually means having a common goal. The Greek here literally means same perspective. So when we are called to have unity of spirit, we're not called to agree on everything. We're not called to stand in line and just follow what our pastor says or follow what our neighbors want us to do or follow what the culture wants us to do. When we're talking about being united in spirit, we're talking about being people who have the same perspective. The mind of Christ dwells among us because we all want the same goal. We all want the same thing. We disagree on how to get there, but God help us that we're gonna try. We're gonna do it the best way that we know how. We have literally the same perspective amongst us all. And so the next thing that he says that we need is some sympathy. We need to have a little bit of sympathy. And I wanna teach you a Greek word. The Greek word for sympathy is sympathy. So now you're Greek scholars. You know this in your heart and your mind. We would maybe translate sympathy a little bit better as understanding. When, we have, when we're sympathetic to someone, we can understand what they are talking about and what they are uh, dealing with. We might maybe even say harmony is developed in part by being understanding. That a unity of spirit, that a togetherness, a same perspective is fostered by a deeper understanding of the people sitting in this room with us, a deeper understanding of the people in our neighborhood, a deeper understanding of the people that we are reaching in our community, that we can foster better unity of spirit by being understanding and being open to what the spirit has in store for us. And then the next one Peter writes is love for one another. These just get harder and harder. I don't understand what Peter was thinking, that this would be an easy thing for us to do. But a life of blessing starts with a unity of spirit. It's opened further by an understanding, and we can't understand each other if we don't first love one another. Philadelphia, it's pretty close to love one another. The brotherly love that we share as one another for Christians, the inwardness of our love has to happen first. It must spark 
inwardly before it can spark outwardly. We might call it mutual affection. We might call it brotherly love. But this was the hallmark of a Christian community in the first century. Their love for one another, the church's ideal love of brother and of sister and of believers in the community. Because let me tell you something, that when they got together, it was fierce, it was ugly, they ate each other, they tore each other apart, they wanted to destroy each other because they were two different people. They were Jews and they were Gentiles and they were sitting next to each other and they didn't agree on anything. They didn't know how to do it. And so Peter says, you know what the first thing you need to do is? You need to start by loving each other. And you need to understand each other. <clears throat> and in your understanding, you need to know that you all have the same goal. You have the same perspective that Christ be magnified in your life. But love for one another, mutual love, brotherly love, Affection for one another is always under threat from human nature. It's hard to love your neighbor. It's even harder to love the person you go to church with because you have to see them and you have to worship with them and we all want something different when we come to church. And so Peter installs two other ideas on how we can love each other better. He said, first, let's have a tender heart as we're trying to love each other. We might, um, we might say compassion. In fact, this is one of my favorite Greek words of all times. It actually literally means good intestines. It means a good internal fortitude. It means wherever that center is in the Hebrew thought of your emotions, of your passion, of your suffering, of your zeal, of your want to do good, wherever that thing is, let it be good. Let your strength inside you be good, and then we can be moved from our inner being emotionally. In fact, we're gonna talk about this concept in just a few weeks when we talk about Jesus as he comes on the shore in Matthew 9, and he's moved with compassion for the people that he sees that are there to worship him. It's the same word that Jesus was so affected in his innards. He was so affected to the inside of his body that he had to do something about it. So Peter says, if you want to love one another, if you want to have affection for your brother across the aisle from you, then first what you need is compassion. You need to be moved by who they are and their love for Christ. And the second thing is you need a humble mind. And a lot of times we think of being humble and humility as just sort of not thinking very much of ourselves and putting others first. Um, the problem with that, and it's good, it's a good place to start. The problem with that is though, in the Greek, what Peter is talking about is he's talking about being made low. He's talking about a pig wallowing in mud. He's talking about actual humiliation and embarrassment when you have a humble mind. In reality, to manage all of these things, one must first start from a low place, a place of humiliation, a place where we know nothing of, but Jesus sure does. Because he was lifted up and placed 
in a place of humiliation, of embarrassment, where he was stripped and exposed for all to see. There is no greater humiliation than to hang naked on a tree. All of these things, though, are about subordination. They're about how we can live in subordination to the people around us, inside the Christian community first and outside the community second. And so those so oppressed by the empire were encouraged to respond to their persecution by imitating Christ. I hinted at it when I said humility is what Christ did on the cross. But each one of these things is to say, hey, Christ came to show us all of these things. And Peter is probably saying, you know what? It's easy to live as Christians. Just do as Christ did. And then they get it all mixed up in their heads and they say, well, I think Christ lived like this or I think Christ lived like this or in order to be a Christian, you need to think like this or do these things. And Peter says, no, 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 it's really simple. Christ showed us the roadmap, unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, compassion, humiliation. Christ came and did all of those things. Now, here's why you suffer because you're going to be called to do those things as well. And yet, in your suffering, you are blessed. There is something greater that comes through this. Imitating Christ now becomes what we call theology of identity. Who you are is less important than whose you are. And it's really an important concept in the idea of Christianity that we imitate Christ because we identify with him. And I've said this before up here, and I'll say it again and again and again. Being good people is not about getting into heaven. It does not get you there faster. It does not get you a better ride to heaven. It does not get you a bigger room. Being good is about imitating Christ. It shows our identity on the outside that we are who we say we are. We are who Christ says he is. And Christ is who God said he was. And so this has nothing to do with our goodness, our righteousness, our justification, any big fancy word that you wanna use for church people. This is plain and simple. We are good. We strive to be good. We strive for all of those things that Peter told us to strive for because our identity is in Christ, and this is how Christ acted. Become and bear. Become like Christ and bear him in the community. Bear him in everything that you do. Carry him with you in everything that you are. Whatever you do, whatever action or words or behavior that you have is a testimony to Christ. It's a witness to who Christ is. Is what he said true? Act like it. Is what happened on the cross true? Act like it. Is what happened on that Sunday in the grave true? Act like it. Is God the creator? Act like it. 
And every time that we do something different, we tamper with that witness of Christ. And so what we do inwardly, what we decide to do in our hearts, our behavior, our words, our actions, they have merit, not because we're trying to get into heaven faster, but because they are ultimately the witness in the community of Christ. Qualities of conduct toward others is about qualities Christ bears. He is the incarnation of God, the living presence of the creator of the universe. He came to show who God actually is, that the law revealed could not be held. That You may not know this, but the law in the Old Testament also reveals God to his people. And we read through Leviticus and we're like, this is so boring. I don't understand any of this. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. What, what is all this stuff? Two different fibers on the same. That It doesn't make any sense to me. But God is revealed in those laws. God said to his people, here's how I want you to live with each other. And in doing so, you honor me. And in honoring me, then you become a blessed person. Okay, I've laid it out for you. I've given you the law. Here's the book, 630 plus rules. You live by these and you will be blessed. I'm not trying to tell you that you can't do things. I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud. What I'm telling you is, If you want to love each other and you want to love me, follow the law. And we cannot do it. We cannot do it. And so how they lived in the first century, it became their best defense against those desiring them for ruin. Those that wanted to see the church collapse, those that wanted to see their culture and their society collapse How they lived was their defense against that. But even when living justly fails to prevent persecution, such a life should still be lived for the sake of justice. To obey and follow Christ who was persecuted on the cross is to share in his suffering. And this is how we are blessed. This is how we live a filled life. This is how our suffering comes alive. The word obey in Hebrew doesn't mean what we think it means. It actually means listen closely. To listen with honor, to listen with value. When someone's talking to you, you look at them. You put away whatever distraction that you have and you give them your full attention because they are worthy of your attention. They value you to share something with you, so now you value them by listening acutely, by listening closely. And my friends, I'm gonna tell you, we don't do that with God. We are called to obey, and we think that means to walk as closely to the law as we can and turn from sin, but it means listen to me. So for example, when God tells Adam and Eve to obey, God is not saying, do what I tell you or else. No, God's saying, look at me and listen. Look at me and listen to me. Because I love you and I value you and I wanna tell you something that's true about your life. 
that you are loved and you are cared for. The Greek word for obedience carries the same exact meaning. It's carried over from Hebrew. Listen closely. And so what made Jesus so great was that he listened so closely to God, which led him to serve and to love humanity in radical and selfless ways. He was great because he was God, but as a human, what did he do? He listened to God and he withdrew from society and said, I'm going to go up in a quiet place and just listen to God. How many times do we just go to a quiet place? How many times do we seek out the voice of God who is speaking to us and we refuse to listen because we have to give up something in order to listen to God? We have to do something different in our lives in order to listen to God. We turn away so many times because it hurts us because we don't want to hear what he has to say. And so a theology of identity forces those who claim Christianity to examine their own lives to see if they have more in common with empire or victims of empire. Are we the persecutors? Are we the oppressors? Are we the ones pushing people out? Or are we the ones that are the victims of that oppression, the ones on the outside? One thing we do need to push back on is the idea of redemptive suffering, that there's a, a, notion, a, notion, a notion out there that if we suffer righteously for God, that somehow we are more righteous as a people. That as a Christian, our belief and our suffering will lead to greater righteousness and a greater reward and greater blessing, which is simply not true. Peter's promising that it will happen. Peter's promising that it will come. And in such a case, you don't have to worry because you're already blessed. You can't get more blessings from suffering. You're going to suffer, but you're already blessed, so do not worry about it if you want the really short version of it. But when they talk about being blessed in the secular Greek, they're saying, be well, be good, my friend, be blessed, have a happy day. Peter's not talking about that. He's not talking about living a life that's filled with happiness. He's not talking about material. Oh, we should talk about that too, right? The prosperity gospel. The more you bless people, the more you're going to become blessed. No, I'm sorry, it does not work that way. You are already blessed by virtue of being in Christ. There's nothing that you can do, no payment you can make that will make you more blessed than anyone else. The blessed that Peter is talking about is looking forward to what comes next. You are people who God will be waiting for at the end of the age when Christ comes again to renew all things and to bring all things together, to live on this earth in new renewal and blessing and love. You will receive the blessing. You are people who have already been there. You are people who have already received that. You're living in a time to wait for that. You are blessed because your identity is in Christ 
who has already suffered for you, who's already paid for those things. So you don't have to worry about those conspiracies. You don't have to worry about the things they fear because Christ has done that for you. And then we look forward to that at the end of the age. Verse 15 says, be ready with the defense. That doesn't mean that we have to write down the lists of reasons that we're a Christian. Sometimes that takes out of context. Well, uh, this is a reason I'm a Christian, and if anyone questions me on it, I'm very nervous, but I will be able to tell them why I'm a Christian. That's not what this verse means. Christians are called to witness to their hope because Christ's resurrection carries with it the promise of a Christian's future. You want to be ready with your defense? Tell them you got hope in the future. Tell them where your blessing lies. Tell them you're not afraid of the latest conspiracy theory. You're not afraid of the things that everyone else is scared of. You want a defense? There it is, right there. Whatever we do, words and actions, behaviors, they mean something. They prove our identity in Christ and they give testimony to him. What does living in Christ's living love do to us? If we're to be living witnesses and living testimonies for who Jesus is, if we're to imitate him, what does living in his love do for us? Here's a deeper question. How do we respond to love? What does the love of Christ compel us to do? Run and tell our neighbors? Serve others in humility? Be of the same perspective, of the same mind? Be sympathetic, be compassionate to one another? That's what it should do. But what does it do in your life? What does the love of Christ do in your life? How do you respond? This passage sets the standards for Christian behavior in a way that is defined independently of the surrounding culture. <laughs> Isn't that great? Because we don't have to worry about what everyone else thinks. We don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. We can live our lives independent of the world around us and we can continue to worship Christ without interference. That's it. Without interference. Governments will not stand against the doors of the church. And we don't have to fear what the government fears. Faithfulness and fear of God motivate Christians rather than the fear of looking foolish, not accumulating wealth, or of being scorned. And when we do otherwise, we undermine the good news and pollute it with hypocrisy and with hostility. Now, I have a confession to make. Preaching on Mother's Day is really hard. Mother's Day sermons are not easy to write. For one... There's not a lot of mother's stories. Two, I would always sit and listen to Mother's Day sermons, and I would think, well, that applies to mothers, yes, but it also applies to everyone else. So what I always felt like would happen on Mother's Day is that 
we would just sort of tack on mothers at the end and say, well, all this stuff is good, and then mothers too. Um, so that's what we're getting this morning. But I want to give it in a different way. Because how do we honor our mothers? The same way we honor Christ, by carrying a testimony of them wherever we go. And see, this is the great thing about we believers as Christians, because Christ is not here with us. And whether our mother is here now with us or still living, we can take the presence of who that woman has shaped us into be wherever we go. And whatever action or whatever behavior or whatever choice we make is a reflection on Christ, yes, but also a reflection of the one who raised us, our earthly mother who gave us those things in the first place, who did the best that she had with what she had and gave everything. By the way, all the mothers of our staff this morning are working with the kids this morning. They're special people. They're important people. They're crazy people. And wherever we go, we get to testify about who they are and the legacy they have given us, what they have taught us, what they have driven into us. And every time that we make a choice or, or a word or a behavior that's against something that they've done, we mix up the testimony. That's not who your mother raised you to be. Who says that most often? Mothers say that. That's not who your mother raised you to be. Now, when I send Sadie off to her grandparents' house, when I leave her, I tell her to be on her best behavior, not because I don't want her to get in trouble. If she gets in trouble, fine. She needs to be disciplined a little bit more. I tell her to be on her best behavior because it's a representation of her parents. It's a representation of what we've taught her. And if she's a terrible kid, then I get embarrassed by that. I'm like, this is not who I've raised you to be. This is not what I've taught you. This is not who you can be. The way that we can honor our mother is by carrying their testimony wherever we go. There's a great poem by E.E. E. Cummings that says, I carry your heart. I carry your heart with me. And your fate is my fate. And whatever fate is tied up with you, it's tied up with me because my heart is your heart and I carry it with me. I carry your heart. So maybe our mothers are gone from this earth. Maybe we've just recently lost them. Maybe we still have them. And maybe we haven't done what we need to do in accepting that no matter what we do, we cannot outrun our mothers. We cannot outrun Christ. We cannot outrun our testimony and witness to the people who have come before us and raised us and put inside of us good values as good people do. Because a testimony for Christ is a testimony for our mothers and a testimony for our mothers is a witness to the good work and a blessing that we are to receive. Man, that's good. Man, our mothers are good for us and good to us because we cannot stop them. We cannot outrun what our mothers have taught us. No matter what we do, we are always trying, well, I don't want to become like her. Oh, great, now I sound like my mother. Good. We want to sound like our mothers. We want to sound like our Christ. We want to sound like the ones 
who have raised us and said, you know what? We are going to be a witness to the world around us.